Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Across the UK, online and on DAB Digital Radio. Women's Football Weekly with Faker Others on TalkSport 2. All the action, excitement and drama from across the entire women's game. Clean off the line by Steph Horton. Including the Women's Super League. And the Euro 2021 qualifiers. On the edge of the area to Emsley, and Emsley's going to finish it off. World-beating big match conversation. There's Jodie Taylor. On the station that's raising the game for women's football. And she scores! Women's Football Weekly with Faker Others on TalkSport 2. Hello, hello. Welcome to this Women's Football Weekly special. I'm Faker Others. Thank you for keeping me company on this Monday evening. Still no live football, but still lots to talk about within the women's game. Tonight, you'll hear from former Lioness Claire Rafferty, who's now the commercial manager at Chelsea, and Jen O'Neill, editor of She Kicks magazine. Between now and 7pm, we're talking about the growth of the women's game. Is it in a stronger place nationally and commercially? Have past changes been the right ones over the previous 10 years? And are the audiences really big enough, both here in the UK and abroad as well? There's a lot to cover, and as ever, I'd like to hear from all of you guys this evening too. What positive changes have you seen in women's football in the past 10 years? We're talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Celebrating and questioning where women's football is at right now in May 2020. Join in, get involved, tell us what you think. Tweet us at TalkSport2. Women's Football Weekly with Faker Others. Hi, I'm Ashley from Putnam and you're listening to the Women's Football Weekly on TalkSport 2. women's football has undoubtedly changed massively in the last 10 years but has it been a defining decade for the women's game in terms of professionalism sponsorship development and growth now to mull over this for the next hour are two experts of women's football former england and chelsea defender now lewis board member and commercial manager at chelsea claire rafferty and the editor of she kicks magazine and sometimes football summariser jen o'neill just to confirm to all of you we are socially distanced by the way. Each of us are in different parts of the UK and broadcasting via some amazing technology. Claire, lovely to hear from you. How are you doing? Hello, good afternoon, Faye. How are you doing? Very, very good, thanks. Jen, I've Hi, missed I'm you. Yeah, I'm a bit worried about how amazing my technology is. So if I go a bit wobbly, we'll see. Sounding pretty amazing to me at the moment. Uh, Claire, you've been involved at every level of the game, obviously as an elite player, uh, now involved in the commercial aspect and at board level as well. You also do a fair bit in the media, of course. 
it's a massive question to start off with, I know, but how has the game changed, particularly in the last 10 years, in your eyes? How long do you have, Faye? Because We've got an hour. I think the, uh, <laughs> the answer to that is, is you know, almost really difficult to measure because when I started, probably 12 years ago, actually, as a... Um, well, the fact that I wasn't a professional, I think that that's a good place to start. Mm. But 12 years ago, it is almost unrecognisable to the landscape of the, the game now. Um, you know, what? when I was uh, prepping for this conversation, I actually had so many milestones written down and I thought, no, I can't be talking for that long about it. Yeah, go but, on, throw some of them out there. But you know what? So um, I think it kind of goes a little bit un, un, unappreciated, I think. The Hope Pal era and for me... Lioness before they were lionesses and we were just England women. Um, the, the central contracts that were introduced, mm. they're, they're a big milestone um, in the way I see it. I think it actually removed the decision between being able to pay your mortgage and play for your country, which is actually laughable now when we look back. Mm. And I think that speaks volumes about how far we've come. Um, I, I think on on next step, I think Olympics was massive for actually realising the potential of the crowds that we could have. So we had 80,000 almost at, at Wembley for the Brazil game um, in the 2012 Olympics. So that was a, a massive milestone. And then, you know, the, the launch of the WSL in, in 2011, I think it was, wasn't it? Mm. Um, and that, that investment from the FA, I know the FA get a bit criticism about it, but, you know, they actually have invested a lot of money in women's football. And I think the infrastructure around it going full time, you know, and then leading into that, uh, the success of, of the 2015 World Cup, getting that bronze medal, Hope then leaving and Mark coming on board and implementing a, a different ethos. Um, and yeah, I just think the growing, the growing digital um, platform that, that England and the WSL and the leagues have really capitalised on. Um, that's the positive stuff. I won't even get into the, the negatives. I'll, I'll leave Jen for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay then, Jen. The, the, there you go. The gauntlet's been laid down by Claire Rafferty. <laughs> um, you're obviously editor of She Kicks magazine. That started back in 1996. Um, on the ball, was that what it was called then? Yeah, so I joined them in 1998. I just left the university at 96. I'm quite old, me. No, you're <laughs> not. Don't be silly. Yeah, so 20-odd years, we've sort of survived trying to promote and support the women's game and carried on in print and all that time but early days we we had to do everything because people just did not know what was happening you know mm. they didn't know we we were where they came for fixtures and results and how to find a team uh, that's just unimaginable that people wouldn't know those things now because of the visibility of the of the sport is so much improved and Claire's made my job much easier because I was just ticking off she <laughs> mentioned that she mentioned that <laughs> I I, I Myself and a colleague, uh, Catherine Nito, cried in 2012 at Wembley before that Team GB Brazil game as we saw all the crowds coming up yeah. Olympic way, it was called, for that for that occasion. And uh, so we see, I, I mean, that's not even that weird an occurrence now. It's almost like, oh, yeah, what was like 40, 50, 60,000 people at Wembley for a women's game now? That's, we, we, we've seen that before, nothing to get too excited about. So <laughs> th there are so many mind-blowing developments in that. 10-year period and Claire's right the FAWSL particularly from an English perspective and and it, Hope I was instrumental in pushing for that as well and it, it was yeah. delayed by a year it was meant to come in 2010 but because of the financial instability it was delayed a year which is kind of a, a poignant given the sort of situation we're, we're in at the moment yeah um, so that, that was massive FAWSL but uh, from a personal point of view in the 90s and the 90s, there were only a handful of people that covered the women's game from a sort of media perspective. And 
maybe you get some I think ham- would... I think handful is complimentary I think it was just you yeah. <laughs> yeah. well and, and only like in one or two others and people would cover <laughs> yeah, a, totally, a yeah. tournament or um, maybe be interested for a season and then they would get moved on and then the past 10 years there's been so many new passionate knowledgeable and fantastic journalists come on the scene and ex-players that's that's been key as well people like yourself Claire who've come through playing the game and then have stepped into the media side so so the coverage is so much better and that's not just the people that's also the outlets so a broadcast um online it's you can you can watch football women's games from around the world if you go online and you find them you and the FA player has been a, a game changer for me every WSL game live all season it's we're just in such a totally different place than we were before yeah and talk sport too has its own weekly dedicated women's football show of course which you know would have been absolutely unheard of even perhaps just a year to two years ago um and we're still the only national commercial radio station with a dedicated women's football show national station not even commercial um that's that's here every single week which you know is brilliant and we're bringing women's football to a whole new audience who perhaps before last summer's world cup weren't really they didn't have women's football on their radar or they had a preconceived conception of what it was and that's been changed and there's been a lot of hard work done with that and you know Jen to be honest massive kudos to you as well in a completely non-patronising way because on the ball as well was the first dedicated women's football magazine in England as well and you know you've been writing for a very niche audience for for quite a long time do you feel as if that's less niche now? Oh absolutely in in fact um, I love nothing more than getting up on a Sunday not having to travel anywhere picking up my um, tablet and reading what everybody else has written, then watching a couple of games and listening to to podcasts and people talking about a sport that I can appreciate now as a as a fan almost rather than as somebody who had to play a Premier League game, um, be absolutely battered by Arsenal, then have to ring around <laughs> for results and write a report for the for the Times for the Monday morning. It's it's yeah it, it it's not niche anymore. That's it feels more like a mainstream sport and the knowledge of of fans has definitely improved because of social media. I think mm. that's been key. But if, if we want to mention negatives and kind of this is... We I have to. The, the, the crux of this programme will end up being about finances and about money. And a caveat, I'm not a fan yeah. of mon- money in football. I think it's ruined a lot of things, particularly in the men's game. So not all of the... Not all of the financial developments have, have been positive in the way that the WSL has had to to reimagine itself three times or its first um, when it was first introduced. It's it's almost emphasised resources over ability of a team mm. or a club, yeah. and that's you know that's collateral damage, and we've accepted that because we want the sport to move you know on. But that's there's been a lot of negative sort of. Um, I think fans have been upset by that. Players have been upset by that. Sorry, Claire. No, sorry, I was going to say it's interesting hearing your side of it because I was very much a player at that time and you don't have that viewpoint on it. So only now stepping away do I have a totally different viewpoint on the you know, the landscape of it and, and listening to what you just said is, is yeah, really interesting. 
It, it, it'd be interesting for our listeners who perhaps are new to women's football or have certainly only really embraced women's football since 2019, perhaps with the success of the Lionesses out, out in France at the World Cup. When you say collateral damage, Jen, um, do you want to tell people that the kind of clubs that, that were huge in the women's game um, a few years ago who've, who've unfortunately had to fall by the wayside? I mean, it happened in, in the 2000s. Initially, Fulham were the first team to ever go professional. Mohamed Al-Fayed put uh, millions into his team. Um, players like Rachel Yankee, um, big stars at the time, played for that club. And uh, and in the in that era, it was kind of accepted that things would come and go because it was a whim of, of chairman. So Fulham and Charlton Athletic were big names in that era and Southampton as well were funded and then weren't funded. My club, Sunderland, yeah. were funded, then weren't funded. We thought that when the the game went went to the next level, because that's what we were expecting that the Super League to be, it was the game taken to the next level. Well, the clubs like Sunderland fell by the wayside. Yeovil Town are another club over the last uh, few years who have put everything into trying to become a community club and have fallen by the wayside. There are clubs that were in the WSL who couldn't afford to go into the, the professional era, like Oxford United, like Watford. We, we can list many teams that have been impacted down the pyramid. There are very uh, ambitious clubs trying to work their way up. So that it's not entirely negative, but it, it leaves it a bit of taste in, in some clubs. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely it does. And I know you're not a fan of of money, Jen, but unfortunately we've, we've got so much to talk about and one of <laughs> the big influencing factors is in the game is money. Uh, we're going to be hearing next from someone who can tell it like it is financially. Kira Maguire from The Price of Football will be with you shortly. Let's find out just how much the women's game is worth. Has its value gone up, perhaps, or maybe even down? And of course, how will the current COVID-19 situation impact it? This is Women's Football Weekly on Talks Sport 2 with me, Faker Rothers, former Lioness Claire Rafferty and She Kicks magazine editor Jen O'Neill. Remember, I want to hear from you. Tweet us your opinions or any questions at TalkSport2 on Twitter. Now, how much is the WSL worth? Have a think before we come back. Is it A, 8 million, B, 15 million, C, 25 million? Find out after this. Women's Football Weekly with Faker Rothers. Hi, I'm Jordan Nobbs and you're listening to Women's Football Weekly on TalkSport2. A very, very good evening to you. This is Women's Football Weekly on Talk Sport 2 with me, Faker Rothers, and it's a very special edition this week where we're discussing the growth of women's football. With you is the editor of She Kicks magazine, Jen O'Neill, and former Chelsea commercial... No, not former, she is still the Chelsea commercial manager and Lewis board member as well, Claire Rafferty. Uh, right, we need to talk money, don't we? Uh, to help us do just that is the author of Price of Football, Kieran Maguire. Thanks for joining us, Kieran. Thanks very much, Faye. So, the question that I posed to our lovely listeners earlier on was, what is the WSL worth? We gave them three options. A, 8 million. B, 15 million. C, 25 million. So, which figure are we talking? I think we're talking B in, in terms of WSL revenues. Um, th th that varies very much from club to club. So, we've, we've got clubs such as Brighton and Reading, who are making around about a quarter of a million pounds each. Um, and then we move up to Manchester City at two million and Chelsea at three and a half. 
So it, it's uh, it's a bit like the the Premier League itself uh, in in the sense that there is a there's a big divide between individual clubs, um, and clearly at, at the lower levels there's there's a challenge to grow those revenues, but everything's heading uh, in a positive direction until coronavirus hit us. Yeah, I, I, we'll talk about COVID nineteen shortly, but you know financially, would you say fifteen million pounds is that a good place? You know, obviously we're used to talking big Premier League money um, in, in in ludicrous terms, £15 million for the WSL. Is, is that healthy? Um, it, it's healthy if you're making a profit from it and, and sort of the downside. And I think we have to remember that um, effectively the WSL is a startup business and you expect startups to to lose money. So the, uh, the WSL clubs lost around about £5 million, sorry, around about £6 million Last season, um, they are they are being subsidised by the the parent clubs, um, but you know, those losses are to be expected. If you want to attract talent to the game, you've got to go and pay people appropriate wages, and also you're going to be spending money on marketing and advertising and and trying to uh, develop the audience and and to get people interested in not only watching the game um, when it's being broadcast, but clearly physically attending matches as well. Yeah. In the past 10 years in terms of finance, we're obviously talking about the growth of women's football, particularly over the last decade. What are your biggest findings? Um, uh, I think what we are seeing is that... uh, Getting sponsors has been critical uh, in in terms of growing the game. Uh, the fact that uh, Barclays have gone in for this you know this uh, long term multi million pound uh, WSL sponsorship, I think, is absolutely critical. And um, because I think that shows that um, national and international companies are finding that there is value in in women's in the women's game. And I think it, once you get one of those uh, large multinationals coming along, then others will follow. So it will help the individual clubs. The the the, uh, the directors of those clubs, the people who are involved in the marketing departments, they'll now be able to go out and say, say to potential sponsors, look, Bar- Barclays are sponsoring the league as a whole. They're a blue chip company. Fancy coming along and getting involved because you're going to suffer reputational gains on the back of that. Yeah, Claire Rafferty, obviously your commercial yeah. manager at, at Chelsea. Um, I mean, yeah, I was just about to jump in then. Yeah, you go for it. What, what were we going to ask? Um, yeah, I've got so many questions for you, Kieran. <laughs> we'll take this offline after. But um, I think for me, what I've seen such a big gap in the actual, you know, the brand of the Lionesses and how well that's been commercialised and then the brand of the WSL and how that hasn't been commercialised as well. Obviously, individual clubs, it's a totally different audience, um, which is what we find we found at Chelsea. How do you kind of actually get your numbers? And Because what, what we found is there's actually just quite a lack of data is difficult to set a benchmark as to, as to you know what commercially we were expected in for some of our partnerships I, I agree agree with you that it, that it is a challenge I mean the lionesses have been a fantastic brand and I think one of the things which attracts people so much to the national team um, and certainly this is uh, this is also true of the US women's national team um, and perhaps an, another analogy would be the the England cricket team as well is that the the national uh, support base seems far more uh, motivated and far more activated than it does on a local level if if the money which is being generated by the lionesses can start to drop down to a greater extent uh, to to the individual clubs and also i think if uh, if some of if a wsl club won, uh, won won the champions league in europe 
all of a sudden there would be greater interest. Uh, my observation is all, also um, that we are now getting more and more local derbies. So you must know that if you are hosting Arsenal or Spurs during the season, you'll be able to sell far more packages to uh, individual matchday sponsors because people know that the the crowds are going to be there. And if you are looking at it from a commercial point of view, um, you know, rightly or wrongly, a, a commercial partner or somebody that wants a hospitality package wants to be part of a big crowd. Now, you're going to achieve that if you've got Everton versus Liverpool, if you've got United versus City, and you've, we've now got the you know, three senior London clubs involved as well. And, of course, there's West Ham to take into consideration. Kieran, how important do you feel the next uh, broadcast deal is for, for the WSL, um, away from the Lionesses, for, for the actual the clubs, the lower league clubs and, and, and the WSL too as well? How important do you feel that deal is? Um. I think it's more important from a profile point of view than a financial. Um, if people see a good product on television, then they'll be more inclined to, to watch the match. Um, so I would be looking to have more matches covered, better highlights packages and things of that nature than actually the the, the, the top line in terms of revenue that it's been, that is being generated. Um, fans will watch football because they love football. Um, if if there is a, a slot being filled by the WSL, then I think that will attract a bigger audience in terms of match day. And, and ultimately, um, that's going to be the, the, the benchmark of success for the WSL because getting crowds in and keeping them um, is, is a way of then generating more commercial relationships and also um, the, the broadcasters themselves, as they see the attendances start to increase, they'll be more inclined to come up with more money for the next deal. So to a certain extent, I, I would sort of follow the approach that was taken by the Premier League itself when it started to sell overseas packages. It, it effectively gave them away for nothing in the early years of the Premier League to build up interest in the game and to develop the audience. Audience. So that would be my view in, in terms of direction of travel. It's really interesting you say that, um, Kieran, because, of course, there are lots of other factors, but but they all kind of merge together, don't they? That You know, it's almost like a jigsaw puzzle and they all need to come together in order for improvements to be made. You've mentioned attendances uh, being up in the top tiers. I know that's obviously going to then um, affect... It, things from a commercial point of view, but also how does it affect clubs' match day income and how useful is that? Well, the match day income figures that I've seen and very few clubs are putting them out, which which is always a little bit of a cause for concern because you, you wonder, well, why, why are they so reluctant to to show the information. Uh, if we take a club such as Birmingham, it had match day in, in income in uh, 2019 of just £22,000. Now, that's for a club that had a turnover of just over a million. So yeah, it, it was 2%. What is Birmingham trying to do? It's effectively trying to use uh, promotions and things of that nature as a loss leader. Um, Manchester United had the highest match day income at 127,000, which which you know is is, is a clearly a, is good to be getting into those six figure regimes. But you know that is Manchester United and everything that goes along with that club in terms of being a global brand. Um, so you'd expect United to be at the top end of the tier. Uh, it, it's that it's that balancing act, as you correctly said. It, we, 
you you want to build the audiences but you want to build the revenues as well so trying to get the right price point is a real challenge for uh, the people that are, are selling the game to to potential uh, viewers and, and uh, fans yeah and that is something we saw when we were talking about the london derby earlier on in the season of course chelsea at the beginning of the season made made the choice to to give away free tickets um effectively by by contacting uh, fans and you know that can work in good ways and, and bad ways interestingly i just want to put a stat out there which which i thought was was very interesting and it would be fascinating to see what it is now in 2020 um because a report from nielsen sport who conducted research into eight different countries uh, basically found sponsorship deals in the women's game have increased by 37 percent between 2013 and 2017 so you would expect bearing in mind the growth of the game particularly in the last two to three years that that um, figure would be even higher um jen just finally um you've seen the growth in coverage from a media point of view um but does that growth in your opinion tie in with the financial growth in the game as well well certainly from the the perspective of brands coming on board, as Kieran's already mentioned, um, Barclays' three-year deal, you have Visa on board as a, a separate sponsor of the women's game at European UEFA level, Boots, Continental, all these, these big names, they're there because the visibility and the coverage, um, it, it makes it attractive. The professionalization of the, the sport improves the product. It, it makes competition better. It, and that in turn drives investment. And so it's always been a case of sponsorship and, and revenue coming hand in hand. That's in terms of sponsorship. It's always going to be difficult. I think the next um, piece in the jigsaw is to, to get the bums on seats and to increase attendances. Because I think all of the signs are that TV audiences are there if you if you provide the coverage and one area i know that broadcasters are slightly concerned about is finding a, a place in a competitive week in terms of football viewership when to place the women's game it doesn't have a natural home and they're campaigning for 3 p.m on a saturday afternoon which is obviously um sacrosanct in in england and in scotland to not play at that time a, a or not broadcast it a game at that time, but that's where they're hoping to be able to to, to put it in the future. But yeah, it's the two things are totally linked. I think even you know newspapers and broadcasters are seeing that there's a, a huge potential there if you cover women's sport, not just women's football, then you will get readership and get viewership. Mm, that word potential comes up a lot, doesn't it? And sometimes that potential, you just feel it's got to start to become realised at some point, um, which it is being, but I feel like it needs more of a, a nudge. And that's what we're here for on Women's Football Weekly on Talk Sport 2. Lots more to discuss. I'm Faker Others alongside Claire Rafferty, She Kicks editor Jen O'Neill and the Price of Football author Kieran Maguire. It is now 6.30 coming up. Did the 2019 Women's World Cup inspire more people to get involved? Involved in football, we'll find out. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Next. Women's Football Weekly with Faker Others. It was a goal that set her career alive. On TalkSport 2. You are listening to Women's Football Weekly on TalkSport 2 with me, Faker Others. Today we're asking you, what positive changes have you seen in women's football in the past 10 years? Uh, Derek has messaged in. He said, for me, more fans coming to the games, no lot more players and broadcasting live games are more popular on TV and the FA player. Sam says the investment from the FA, the move to Wembley for the FA Cup finals while keeping ticket prices fair and value for money for women's football and the safe environment for fans. Uh, keep them coming. Tweet us at TalkSport2 or use the hashtag TSWFW. Former Chelsea, West Ham and England defender, now Chelsea's commercial manager, Claire Rafferty is with you along with the editor of She Kicks magazine, Jen O'Neill and our expert in finances, Kira Maguire, author of The Price of Football. Uh, now, when we look back at the growth of the women's game, we, we kind of can't do that without looking down the leagues. As I'm sure you know, Claire, it used to be quite difficult to get into women's teams. There weren't that many around. The women's game wasn't set up like like the men's with academies and things, yeah. but now kids are able to join a club as young as four uh, and then progress through the ranks. You can see that at clubs like Manchester City. Um, how important has it been for clubs to set up academies, almost getting their own house in order, if you like, by setting up some kind of proper structure? And, and have you seen that at Chelsea? Yeah, you know what? Actually, I didn't. Ha- I didn't have a great deal of knowledge in in how the academy system worked. I know they've been working on it um, behind the scenes. I've actually reached out to one of the head coaches in the academy, uh, TJ, who's given me a bit of an insight. Um, just because it, I actually, there's not a lot of visibility on it if you're not actually mm. in, you know involved in it. That's a big so problem. <laughs> we we have und- yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think the fact that I didn't even know in the first place might, you know, might highlight the issue. But actually, the structure of the academy has improved and is actually, yeah, you know, I can only ever speak for Chelsea's behalf. But you know, we have under tens, under twelves, fourteen, sixteens, all the way up to eighteens. Um, the fourteens and sixteens obviously play, you know, the regional girls academy league against the southern based clubs, um, you know, like Arsenal, Southampton. Um, and the under-18s play in the National League against the, all the other WSL clubs and some championship clubs, I think, as well. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, as you said, it's very important to, to actually get your house in order. We've had a free, I think, graduate from the academy scheme now. And, and we've, first team, so. we've seen how crucial that is in, in the men's game. Obviously, funding is, is a problem. Kieran, from your findings, how many clubs actually have the profit to build their own academies and stadiums? Because, of course, it always does come down to money, doesn't it? Well, I mean, the, the clubs are almost universally losing money. Um, but 
their, their host clubs, the men's teams to which they're associated. Um, if, if the women's club loses money, that's excluded from financial fair play calculations. So there is an incentive to invest in the in the women's teams and also the academies because that widens the talent net. And also it means that further down the line, you're not going to have to pay out transfer fees um, when, when you are recruiting. So the women's game, unfortunately, isn't making money, even at the WSL um, top tier level. But I'm not particularly surprised by that, because if you want to attract players, you have to pay them appropriate wages. And, and whilst the game's not generating enough money at present, if the players are good to attract new punters to come and watch the game, then that figure, those figures can potentially turn around. Jen O'Neill from She Kicks magazine. Um, do you think it's really important that the money clubs need to be investing in this? They, that they should try and have this kind of one club set up and that's where the money needs to be directed to? Yeah, but I, I think they're, they're two different things because the, the FA have had a, a talent pathway in place since the late 90s. Kelly Simmons was integral in, in putting that into place. So 30-odd clubs throughout the last 20 years the minimum of 30, sometimes it's been 40, 50 clubs have had centres of excellence and now we have regional talent centres or there's um, special development centres and they feed into national performance camps and that's where they've they've unearthed a lot of this talent and they do partly fund that for, for clubs across the country. Mm. So it's not just down to the men's club to, to fund that, although when it gets to academy level, so over 16, then I do believe that the, the, the onus is slightly more on the club itself. And we have seen some fantastic players coming through that and we have over over many years. And the England team is is pretty much, you know, full of players who've come through through that system, through that pathway. The one club ethos, absolutely, is I I think even for because not every club can afford to to fund their women's team to the extent that a Chelsea or a Manchester United or an Arsenal can it's a mindset, it's an attitude and a habit to have to include your women's team, your women's players when you market new kit launches or, you know, in imagery and information on your website or around the stadium, sharing information about fixtures or, or trials. It's, it's an attitude to have that everybody within the club should have respect and, and be inclusive. It doesn't always cost money and that's what's always frustrated me about um, certain clubs and even to an extent association and federation level or county FAs that they don't give the women's or the youth or the disability or any other area of, of, of the sport the, the coverage and visibility that they could have which doesn't cost money. Yeah it, you make a really interesting point there because you know it, it's something that that you can see the success. Success can be measured when you see the one club mentality. The successful clubs are the are the ones that have adopted it in recent times and, it, and it's quite important. You are listening to Women's Football Weekly on Talk Sport 2 with me, Faker Rothers. I'm alongside Claire Rafferty, Jen O'Neill and Kieran Maguire. Um, I just want to throw some figures at you all uh, because the FA released figures at the end of 2019 revealing that 2.63 million women aged 16 and over in England now play football, which is up 9% from three years ago. So participation figures have risen across different adult age groups with almost 350,000 new players compared with this time last year. We're talking specifically about the growth of women's football, particularly over the last decade as well. Uh, Claire, how much do you think that that has been a result of big tournaments like last year's World Cup? 
yeah, I think it's, I think that's a paramount reason for, I think it's a massive catalyst for actually young girls, you know, choosing to play football and also choosing to ask a question and uh, if they can't, why can't I? I remember I, I asked that question when I was younger, you know, why do I have to stop playing with the boys? Why don't I have a team? So I think that, you know, the more you, the more you see it, the more you, you can be. Um, so I think that's that's been a massive influence. Also, obviously, you know, the social media side of things has been key. Um, and the storytelling and the narrative just behind the players, you know, they're, they're all relatable, you know, just normal, normal women. Um, I never had that role model and that kind of expectation to be a professional footballer and these young girls, you know, they, they do now. So I think I think it is the lionesses have been key, but I think also obviously the WSL and the league has, has played an important role. Yeah, similar findings from UEFA as well. Their research showed that uh, the number of youth leagues, so we're talking under six teams to to under 23s, has grown from 164 in 2013 to 266 in 2017. So that's an additional 102 leagues, like leagues, (laughs) in the space of four years, which is... I think it's exactly, and I I think, sorry, it's actually just about um, the talent pool that we have. You know, the, the more options and more, you know, availability of players, it only, it's only going to strengthen the league, it's only going to strengthen the national team. So I think that that is key to success and I've always stood by that. Mm. It's not just more people playing women's football, more people are watching it uh, as well. Um, during the 2011 World Cup in Germany, a peak match average viewing figure uh, of 1.7 million was reached. In 2019, we all know the figures, a massive 11.7 million people watching England's defeat by the USA in the semi-final of the World Cup. I mean, that, that's growth of 10 million. Um We've talked about broadcasting a little bit, uh, but Jenna O'Neill from She Kicks magazine, do you think broadcasters also have to play a part in this and make games available to watch um, on free-to-air TV? Yeah, absolutely. And, and your figures pretty much just <laughs> explained that in, in stark reality. And I was commentating for uh, Eurosport in 2011. Well, how many people have Eurosport? With the, with the best <laughs> will in the world, they, they didn't have the, the player that you could watch online. And so as soon as the BBC obviously were, were involved at a certain level, so 2009 even, the BBC only showed the Euro semi-final and final when the, the women got to the final in Finland. It has to be visible. It just it is so crucial. And, you know, all these hundreds of thousands of little girls and boys who want to be just like Lucy Bronze, for example, because they saw her score wonder goals in 2015 or 2019, they wouldn't even know who she was if it wasn't for, for free-to-wear broadcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Kieran, I just want to leave one final point um, to you. Kieran Maguire from The Price of Football, uh, you're hearing the thoughts from. Um, in terms of, we are going to do a special uh, Women's Football Weekly on the future of women's football uh, next week. But from your point of view, in terms of the future growth of the game financially, are we on an upward trajectory and how... Um, steep is that incline i think we have been on a uh, upward trajectory if you just got to look at the accounts of everton um you know they, they their income's gone up by around about 30 percent this year um and i you know, i know some of the people i work in liverpool so uh, i know how much people were looking forward to the match against uh, liverpool and manchester united and so on um 
I, I genuinely am now worried about the impact of the coronavirus because of the overall hit that it's going to take to the game. And therefore, with women's with women's teams losing money, are the uh, you know, are, are the other parent clubs going to be willing to invest the the additional monies that would have been otherwise required to keep up that uh, the upward push uh, in terms of developing the game and generating further interest? Anecdotally, are you hearing anything that could be to the detriment of women's teams in the future? Um, my, my concern is that clubs are looking on a line-by-line -line basis at all expenses of the clubs and looking to see where they can make cuts. So there's unfortunately there, there is no reason why the women's game should be exempt from the, the nature of those reviews which are taking place. Thank you so much for joining us. Kira Maguire from The Price of Football. Your thoughts and expertise, much appreciated. You are listening to a Women's Football Weekly special. I'm Faker Ruthers and I'm alongside Claire Rafferty and Jen O'Neill. Social distancing alongside. I use alongside uh, in the loosest term. Uh, don't forget, Women's Football Weekly is actually now available on podcast as well. So you, if you do miss anything, you can download on Spotify and iTunes and listen back to us whenever and wherever uh, you like. Uh, next up we're going to round up everything and debate what the game needs to do going forward across the uk online and on dab digital radio hi i'm Gemma bonnet and you're listening to women's football weekly on talk sport 2 A very good evening to you. It's Monday evening and this is Women's Football Weekly on TalkSport 2 with me, Faker Others. Claire Rafferty and Jen O'Neill are still with us. They're broadcasting from their homes, of course. So far, we've been focusing on the growth in the UK, but of course, we do need to look beyond that. And we couldn't have a show here on TalkSport 2 without talking about the big news that came out of the United States on Friday. The US women's team have been at the forefront of the women's game uh, for time World Cup winners and of course campaigners for equal pay. Uh, so before we look at the infrastructure over there and what we can learn from that here in the UK, uh, we need to focus on that news uh, regarding USWNT's legal battle with US soccer um, as this is obviously key to the growth of the game uh, globally. Jen O'Neill, editor of She Kicks magazine, I know you've also been following this story closely. Can you just summarise for people uh, what's been going on? Well, I shall try to. I'm, I'm not a legal expert. And either, it's very complex, I know. <laughs> it is. So basically, the, um, led by players like Alex Morgan and Megan Rapinoe, the US women's national team last March filed a lawsuit against US soccer, the federation. And their complaint was um, for violations around equal pay and unfair treatment. Um, they were saying that, that basically the men were getting paid more than them and they were getting better travel and accommodation. They were quite confident they were going to win. So when on Friday, the the US district judge threw out their equal pay claim, they were shocked and disappointed. He said that because they turned down a collective bargaining agreement, which was offered to their man to the men's team, because they didn't agree with it in the first instance, they can't now say that they missed out on earnings that they would have got. That, that's kind of his, his argument. However, he has upheld their complaint that there's a gross disparity in the money spent on airfare and hotels, etc., for the 
for the men's team compared to the women's team. Mm. It, so, it, so it that's does kind of where we are. It, but, do, it does very much sound like they're going to end up settling out of court, which is what everybody expected them to do anyway. But what I found fascinating about it was that the, the judge seemed to suggest that the women's team were victims of their own success because they had got millions in bonuses for being successful, whereas the men's team had only qualified and um, hadn't hadn't qualified for the World Cup in 2018. And in order to get a bonus, they needed to have qualified for two World Cups. They didn't. So it actually works out that the women's team earned more money than the men's team. And that's why he didn't, that's why he threw it out. But actually, if the men's team had qualified for two tournaments in a row, they would have been given bonuses that would have vastly diminished what the women's team had won in bonuses. So, I mean, that to me personally, you know, it, it, it defeated the object and, and was very difficult for, for the, the women's team to, to fight back on. Yeah, fundamentally, the women's team at this present time and in the last few years has been more successful, they've been more profitable, They've had higher TV audiences than the men's team. So, so their argument is fairly sound. And they are quite confident that if they go to appeal, which they're going to do, they, they will be successful in the long term. And Becky Sauerbrunn, the defender and, and sometime co-captain, had tweeted, if you know this team at all, you will know we have a lot of fight left in us. We knew this wasn't going to be easy. Change never is. So they're not backing down, and it could mean that the trial gets put over to to twenty twenty one. Well, they are appealing it. Actually, I saw something flash up on my screen not that long ago saying that they 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 will appeal, which we expected. And it's very important. I think more so the 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 treatment aspect, the the gender discrimination in terms of how much the federation were paying to to fly the men's team to tournaments. They needed to be better rested, apparently, <laughs> which seems a crazy argument. This will have more of an impact for, for other women's teams around the world than necessarily the equal pay thing will, because the women, the US women's team have a much stronger argument in terms of equal pay, and it clouds the argument for other mm -hmm. national teams and other female players around the world, because Joe Bloggs down the street thinks that all women are demanding to be paid the same as, for example, Lionel Messi, which they're not, but they want the respect. It doesn't cost that much to give respect. And federations and associations should be setting the example of fair treatment, especially when you consider in England, the FA banned the women's game for 50 odd years and put the development of the sport back that way far. back and of course the whole point of this women's football weekly special is talking about the growth of women's football and this is going to massively help the growth of women's football because they have put this argument and this situation on a global stage it's being talked about by a lot of people and actually something like this perhaps you know 20 years ago or 10 years ago which is the time frame that we're discussing at the moment just wouldn't have happened or certainly wouldn't have had as much exposure in the media as this has. Oh, absolutely. And, and being in the stadium when Infantino came out in Lyon for the World Cup final and you've got an entire crowd chanting equal pay, they really are making their mark. And Megan Rapino as a, as a person, as a spokesperson, they're, they're making people think anyway and, and making people think about acceptance and and that's that's got to be a, a, a massive thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Claire Rafferty, you're now a board member at Lewis um, FC. Uh, conversations like this, how important are they? 
you know, leaking back to the USA point, it's about actually setting standards um, and not being bullied into into settling for anything less. You know, Lewis has set a benchmark in in this country for you know equal play, equal pay. Sorry, and, and the Equality FC that they stand for. I think we have to think about sometimes how how clubs are actually set up, and and I think Lewis are leading in that front. Um, I think. You know, we all look up to the USA team and I think Jen actually explained it really well because I've, I've been quite confused about what's been going on. Mm. Um, and even, you know, it, internationally, lots of times um, in training, I remember at Chelsea, all different nationalities, Swedish team, Danish, um, Dutch, for example, we all come together and we, we have these debates in the changing room and we'd be like, well, well actually, then we're going to ask our federation for this. And, you know, we're going to, well, that's good to know. We're going to then ask our federation. So, this, what the USA are doing and what Lewis are doing, it, it is paramount to, to, to making change in, in, women's, in women's football and women's sport. Yeah, and that's crucial. Um, look, finally, before we go, I'm going to have to ask you each the quickest question with the quickest response. Claire, first of all, we've been discussing the growth of the women's game throughout this past hour in the past 10 years. Do you think the women's game is going to grow as much in the next 10 years? Yes. Done. Boom. Jen? Um, I have to mention Doncaster Bells as a casualty, otherwise people will shoot me. They were <laughs> they had their fifty first, fifty second anniversary this year and, and they were a team that were crucial in the in the development of the women's game and they were a casualty of WSL. Anyway, um yes, absolutely it's going to grow as much and it will be more visible and more tangible because it, we've reached the tipping point. FIFA, UEFA, national associations and media and the brands are all catching on board to that keyword, that the potential mm. of the women's game. Yeah, that, that word is key, potential. It's safe to say everyone's optimistic about the future of the women's game. Still a long way to go and so much to do and to fight for as well. And that's exactly what we're going to be focusing on as we bring you another Women's Football Weekly special here on TalkSport 2 next week about the future of the game. What can we do to bring women's football to the masses? It's been an absolute pleasure discussing the growth of the women's game so far with uh, former Lioness, of course, former West Ham, Chelsea um, and England defender Claire Rafferty, Jen O'Neill, editor of She Kicks magazine as well. Thank you so much and many thanks to the Price of Football author Kieran Maguire as well. Don't forget, please spread the word, subscribe to the Women's Football Weekly podcast as well. It's available to download on iTunes and Spotify. Across the UK, online and on DAB Digital Radio, Women's Football Weekly on TalkSport 2. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 